let's create our motivation. As Shanti Deva made very clear to us in the initial chapters, our real enemy is the afflictions, not other living beings. And to recall that the afflictions are not an inherent part of us. If we don't remember that, then when we see our afflictions, we fall into discouragement and self-hatred, telling ourselves we're bad, we're hopeless. But when we remember that the afflictions are not the nature of the mind, that they can be removed, that the wisdom realizing emptiness is the method to remove them. Then when we see the afflictions, we're able to say, oh, these are the enemy. Now I'm going to oppose them and not feed them. Okay, so it all depends on recognizing what the enemy is and recognizing that the nature of the mind, the ultimate nature of the mind, is not permeated by these afflictions. And the conventional nature of the mind also is is not permeated by these. And so the afflictions can be eliminated. And there's a method to do it. And so that is what we are learning. And so this applies to all living beings. So when we see that, and we see that everybody has the potential to become a Buddha, then that really uh, lightens our heart, and we don't see people as evil people or as uh, hopelessly uh, corrupt people. We see that they are afflicted by their afflictions that are not the nature of their mind also. So that helps us stop the judgmental mind and instead be able to look at others with kindness, with compassion, and with the wish to benefit them and to attain full awakening so that we can do that most effectively. So cultivate that motivation. So in one of the Mind Life conferences, probably around 1990, quite early on, um, there was a discussion 
amongst the presenters about uh, self-esteem and why so many people didn't like themselves and even hated themselves and felt themselves not successful and something wrong with them. And His Holiness was very perplexed by this idea. And he looked around the room, you know, which was full of people with PhDs, yeah, and uh, and said, who, who here hates themselves? And everybody looked at each other and said, we all do. His Holiness was completely, you know, taken aback. And he said, but you're so successful. You know, in the worldly way, you're so successful. Why don't you like yourself? And therein started a really fascinating um, uh, brainstorming session of why this is a problem in the West. And one of the things that was the one of the first things that somebody said was the Christian idea of original sin. Yeah, that being taught from the time that you were young that you were born with sin. You know, you're, uh, you know, you're you're not a fresh state, but a fresh slate, but you weren't born with any good qualities. You were born with sin. And it was inherited somehow, which I find very interesting. Do they say through the genes? How is this seen, you know, this sin inherited? Uh, you know, beginning with this whole thing in the in the Garden of Eden and that apple and, you know, and the snake, and uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, and how the telling of that story uh, to people when they're very young makes a very strong imprint. Yeah, and uh, how this combines with the attitude of shame. Okay. And I think we've talked about shame and guilt before. And I think there's, to me, there's a big difference between them. Guilt is, you know, uh, I made a horrible mistake. Of course, I'm a, I'm a failure. Shame is I'm intrinsically flawed. I didn't even have to make a mistake. I am intrinsically flawed and hopeless, and there's nothing to do about it. You know, so this feeling of, yeah, shame, this, yeah, kind of. And so how those things are related, you know, that origin story and then the feeling of shame, how that is taught to young children, you know, when they go to Sunday school or even they aren't in Sunday school and, uh, and then that that is that's not the only thing that plants this seed of low self-esteem or being a failure but it's something that is kind of pervasive in christian uh culture yeah that isn't uh in in buddhist culture because the holiness was totally shocked totally shocked I was there at the time. I, I saw it. 
<laughs> you know. Um, so to look in our own mind and see how, you know, what we heard as children or maybe that idea of shame put into us and how that has hampered our joyous effort in practicing the Dharma. Okay? How? Well, joyous effort, you have a sense of self-confidence. You have a sense of aspiration. You know, you have a feeling that you can do something good, and it may take a long time, and it may be hard, but you're very happy to just do that and go in that direction. Whereas if we feel shame, if we feel that there you know, because of the apples thing, that something is intrinsically wrong with us, and we didn't even have to make a mistake, then right from the get-go, there's this feeling of what's the use? Yeah, uh, yeah, what's the use? I, I was born this way, and uh, I don't care, there may be many rebirths, but I'm always going to be reborn with sin. And and what's to do? So, you know, I'm unqualified to practice the path. Yeah, and we draw that conclusion, not only about the path, but about so many things in our life. Yeah, uh, going back to my teacher was a monster. Um, yeah, when I was teaching third grade. There was this adorable little boy um, called Tyrone in the class. And somewhere along the line, somebody told Tyrone that he was stupid and that he was never going to be able to learn to read. And because he had heard that and believed it from some adult, he couldn't learn to read. Yeah, because he was told that, he believed it, he couldn't do it. Yeah, and that was his biggest hindrance. And so, you know, we see so often in our own lives and in the lives of people that we know, this thing of, I can't do it, something's wrong with me, I am inherently flawed, Yeah, prevents not only progressing on the path to Buddhahood, but even learning to read. Yeah, or in my case, learning to do anything that has to, more than, you know, changing the light bulb. Because in, was it eighth grade or seventh grade, I had to take home ec. Yes, yes, because I was supposed to be a housewife. Yeah, could you imagine me as a housewife? No, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think so. Yeah. But girls couldn't take shop. Yeah, the boys took shop, and the girls took home ec. Okay, so I took something that I wasn't going to be, and as a result, I can't do anything more electrical than change the light bulb you know, and flush the toilet. I cannot fix anything. Yeah. 
because you know because you're told at a certain level well you you know girls just don't do that why not why not huh? you know, and boys just don't boys don't learn home ec yeah or if they learn girls are cooks boys are chefs yeah, we're turning the kitchen over to you guys. You know, you can be chefs. <laughs> yeah, but it's very interesting, isn't it? How we are taught certain gender roles, certain things about our capacity that are conspiracy theories. Yeah, but society believes them and we are inculcated with that when we're young and we follow the tradition and believe that rubbish. Okay, so uh, this is a big hindrance for us. And that's why there's a whole chapter on enthusiasm or joyous effort because that's the antidote to it. So enthusiasm isn't just, oh, goody, I get to do this. You know, I'm, I'm enthusiastic because I'll get some ice cream at the end. No, it's, it's an attitude where you really see clearly what your potential is and you aspire to actualize it because you know the benefit of that. And you know that the only thing that hinders you is... All is your afflictions and all your distorted conceptions. Yeah, all the things we tell ourselves about who we are and who we aren't that are rubbish. Okay, so to, to just remember this. Okay, so we are... We'll, we'll do, uh, okay, so verse 29. Due to the strength of the bodhicitta, the bodhisattvas consume their previous trans transgressions and harvest oceans of merit. Hence, they are said to excel the shravakas, or the hearers. So the hearers are the people who strive to become arhats, who want their own personal liberation. Okay. They have they may have compassion, they may have love for sentient beings, yeah, but they don't have the bodhicitta. Okay. So the thing that distinguishes bodhisattvas is having the bodhicitta and having that aspiration for full Buddhahood. Okay, and what makes a bodhisattva a bodhisattva? The bodhicitta. Okay. So that is an essential element of the path that we're practicing. Yes, I'm, I'm very happy to see Buddha Bear is well taken care of and uh, is, is awake listening to the teachings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, verse 30. So having mounted the horse of Bodhicitta, that dispels all discouragement and weariness. 
who, when they know of this mind that proceeds from joy to joy, would ever lapse into despondency. That is a powerful verse, isn't it? So you mount the horse of, of bodhicitta. You know, you do the, bodhi, the bodhicitta meditations. Yeah? You reflect about the qualities of a bodhisattva. Yeah? So not just doing the meditations, but you see what bodhisattvas are, what they can do, what they have realized. Yeah, this is in volume, some of it's in volume six. Yeah, some of it's in volume five of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. Yeah. So when, when you know that, it dispels discouragement and, and weariness because all of a sudden, well, it's not all of a sudden. You, you have to study and think about it. But you realize that your life has a much higher purpose and you have much higher potential than you ever thought or that anybody you ever knew uh, told you about. Yeah? I mean, think about it. When we all grew up, most of us, I think, grew up in worldly families with worldly goals and our parents really wanted us to be happy, yeah? And what did they think happiness was? Money. So you need a good job. To have a good job, you need an education, yeah? You get married. You find the one true love who... gives you a run for the money. <laughs> um, no, who, who challenges you to really think about what love means and if romantic love actually is, is something that is existent or not. <laughs> um, having kids, having a social life, yeah, climbing up, the uh, whatever ladder you're in, whatever career you do, you get bumped up because you're successful. And this is what our parents wanted for us and what they saw, because they want us, they want their kids to be happy and they wanted us to have this. Did anybody ever tell you that you had the potential to become a Buddha? Yeah. Did anybody tell you that you had the potential to dispel anger from your mind completely? Did anybody tell you that the, you ever had the possibility to have impartial love and compassion for every sentient being? Not just the ones you like, but everyone, even the ones that you know you used to hate or feel threatened by. Did anybody tell us that kind, that we had that kind of potential? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I didn't hear it. My potential was make a lot of money, get married, have a family, uh, climb up whatever ladder it was, and then die. Yeah, so... Hearing about the bodhicitta, it dispels discouragement and weariness 
because we have a totally different vision of our life. Yeah, our life is not just about mimicking our own version of our parents' lives. I know that was a, a big quandary when I was young. You know, like, what's the purpose of my life? Is, is it just to kind of replicate what my parents' life was? Well, that wasn't, you know, they were wonderful people, but that really didn't interest me. Huh? So just, uh, you know, hearing about bodhicitta, knowing about it, then, and knowing that you have the potential to generate it, then how can you ever carry around this mind of discouragement that says, I'm not qualified, I'm inherently defective, I can't do it, everybody else is better than me, I'm a failure. How can you carry around that mind? Yeah? If you really have faith, you know, because you've done some of the meditations and investigated, that you have that potential. You can't hang on to that self-image. Okay? And the weariness that comes from discouragement, yeah, the weariness of like, oh, I've got to go to enlightenment. Yes, I was fortunate to hear about bodhicitta, but now I've got to get there. And it's so hard. Yeah. Being able to be a Buddha and manifest so many bodies, I can't do it. And give my present body away to tigers. Ah, you know, the other day, yesterday, I was walking in the forest and I saw a cougar. And that was the last thing I wanted to do was give that cougar my body. I wanted to get away from that cougar as fast as I could, even though the cougar was terrified of me and ran away. Oh, you know, and anyway, I just can't do it. It's just too much. Yeah, my back hurts. My neck hurts. I can't hear anymore. I can't see anymore. You know, I have so many problems. Life is bearing on me. <sighs> you know, I'm just exhausted. Uh, how can I ever become a Buddha? There was the Buddha, all, there, there was the Bodhisattva always crying, but I never heard of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva always exhausted. <laughs> I volunteered to be that Bodhisattva. <laughs> You know, but I just can't do it. You know, I, I haven't found, you know, in any of the sutras, the chapter, uh, you know, on the questions of the bodhisattva always exhausted. Yeah. You would think I would have, you know, put that in there. Yeah, my previous lives. This life, oh, we'll add another chapter to the... To the conqueror. <laughs> yeah. Joking. Um, okay. But if you have that idea of bodhicitta, you can't be discouraged. You can't just be exhausted. I mean, you can be physically tired, but the mind that is just exhausted from beating yourself up, 
Yeah, you don't have. So who, when they know of this mind, the bodhicitta mind, that proceeds from joy to joy, would ever lapse into despondency. Okay, when, so when you have that feeling of, wow, look what I can become, okay, it's going to take a few countless great eons, but I've met the path to do that. Yeah, and that's taken more than a few countless great eons to meet that path. So how can I be despondent? Okay. Verse 31, the supports when working for the sake of sentient beings. Okay, so I've dispelled the despondency. Now, okay, what do I need to work for the sake of sentient beings? Yeah, what do I need? So there's four, four things, okay? First is aspiration. Second is steadfastness. Third is joy. And fourth, it says rest, but other people translate it as relinquishment. But we want rest, don't we? Actually, let's make rest the first one. <laughs> so the way Shand, uh, you know, when the commentators put it, is I shall develop the masses of army to destroy the disto- dis- discordant class of joyous effort for the sake of accomplishing the welfare of sentient beings as follows. Just as a king gains victory over his antagonists by means of the four masses of army, the four concordant conditions of joyous effort are... And then there's four. So U.S. Army, yeah. Uh, what are there? There's four kinds of things. What is it? Yeah, it must be air and sea, and and then infantry and artillery. So okay. So uh, and that's what's you know. Look, we have a war, Russia and Ukraine, you know, which is involving the whole world actually. Yeah, and uh, and people trying to kill one another, thinking that the other people are the enemies. Okay, so Shanti is using that as an analogy, except saying the real enemy is the afflictions. Okay, the king who is employing everything is the bodhicitta. And the armies are these four qualities of aspiration, steadfastness, joy, and then relinquishment or resting. Okay? So the, the, it's interesting. The first one, sometimes in, uh, some people translate it as aspiration and some people translate it as interest. Yeah. To me, there's a big difference between the English words of interest and aspiration. Okay? I'm interested in uh, um, the deer and how they have their babies and bring their babies up. And, you know, they have their babies and then they have to leave their babies in the forest alone during the day so mama can go out and eat 
and, and then she comes back and nurses them. Yeah. So the babies are all alone, very vulnerable. Yeah. They could get attacked by, you know, that uh, that cougar or uh, coyotes or who knows what. Okay. So I'm interested in deers. Do I have an aspiration to be a deer? No. Okay. Do I have an aspiration to devote my my life to deers? No. Okay. So the power of in you know interest is yeah that's interesting. Aspiration is I want to develop that. I want to go there. Okay. So here it's the aspiration for adopting and discarding, you know, what to practice and what to abandon on the path, having contemplated actions and their results. So having contemplated karma, yeah, and knowing what kind of actions produce what kind of results. So, you know, the wheel of sharp weapons, you've studied that, the sutra of the wise and the foolish, the uh, chapters on karma in the Lamrim and in other books, you know, you've studied that. Ratnavali talks a little bit about the karmic, well, not a little bit, there's quite a few verses about um, uh, the causes for the uh, 32 qualities of a Buddha's body. So you learn about cause and effect. And then through that, you know what to practice and what to abandon on the path. And that's kind of the foundation that we really need for practice. Okay? Our foundation is is not, let's take Vajrayana initiation, which some people do. It's like, let's learn what to practice and what to abandon. Okay? So that's the power of aspiration. Because then... We, our mind changes. We, we aspire to abandon negativities. We aspire to create merit. Okay. Then the second one is steadfastness, which is not embarking on anything without examining it. And having examined it, culminating what has been embarked upon. Okay, so this one goes against our impulsiveness. Yeah, anybody here impulsive? Yeah? So, you know, oh, that sounds good. You have interest. You have aspiration. Yes, that sounds good. Let's do it. And then you overcommit. And, you know, and you do it with a good mind because you're really enthusiastic. And then you make all these promises, and then reality hits, and you have, and you go, uh, <laughs> you know, I said I was going to do that, but it's I bit off more than I could chew, yeah, and so you, and then you don't complete it. Okay, so this has some definite problems in our life. It creates, you know, it inconveniences many other people, and it also creates the cause to not fully experience the result of our own virtuous actions, because everything remains incomplete. Yeah. So all four of these um, 
parts, you know, will be explained in greater depth. Okay, the power of joy is not discontinuing like a child engaging in play and overtaking joyous effort without satiation, undertaking joyous effort without satiation. So this is like a child. You are so happy like a kid who gets to play. Yeah? And the kid is not playing video games, so you are not putting in your mind how to kill other people. Yeah? By a video game. You are being... You know how how you used to play when you were a kid? And you just took what was around... Yeah, and then you played with it, and you made up stories, and you made up games, and you didn't have to have a Lego set, you didn't have to have video games, you didn't have to have a treasure house of toys. You just had sticks and stones and, you know, pieces, scraps of paper and whatever you found around, okay? And and then together with all the your, the other kids you played with, you played and you were happy playing. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, and you're just running around. So that kind of joy that, you know, you just feel happy playing and you're never satiated. You could always do more. Mm -hmm. Like it's summer vacation. Remember summer vacation when you were in school? It's summer vacation. I can go swimming. Wow! Every afternoon I can jump in the swimming pool. This is great. Yeah? Show that kind of attitude about life. It's really sad, isn't it? How adults don't have that enthusiasm about life. You know? People get older and then instead of like, wow, look can I do, it's like, well, I have to do this, and I'm supposed to do this, and I have this list of, you know, 25,000 things I've got to do, and I never finish my list, and people just add more to it, and I'm... (sighs) Yeah, have you ever noticed that? And that sometimes the older people get, the more burden they feel with life. Yeah, that whatever bad experiences they've had in life, they don't recuperate from them. Instead, those bad experiences just weigh on them more and more and more, you know, and self-recrimination and no joy. Yeah, until maybe, maybe that's why they want grand, grandchildren, because then you, then you have a baby and babies are supposed to make you happy. Yeah. When you're when you're a grandparent, they do, because then you can give them back to the parents when they cry. Yeah. Um that's what my mom liked about having grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, pass them back to their mom and dad when they when they are a pain in the neck. Um okay. And then the power of relinquishment. Resting if the body and mind become exhausted through undertaking joyous effort and immediately making joyous effort again upon having rested. So this is 
the power, as they call relinquishment, as the power of rest, what it means is you learn how to have a balanced life. Uh, so you know how to put forward your energy and your body will get tired sometimes and sometimes your mind gets tired. And so you have to learn to know when your body's tired so you rest because if you don't rest when your body's tired then you usually get sick yeah or you get more exhausted and then you know that doesn't help anybody including yourself or your mind's tired from making effort but you push and you push and you push and then you don't have any joy in what you're doing so this fourth one is you know uh, realizing hey i'm still a sentient being yeah i have my my uh, aspirations and my joy and my steadfastness but i also have a body and mind and i need to learn how to pace myself and be realistic about that yeah and most of us don't know how to do this okay and i'm not quite sure why if it's you know we usually there's two we go we're extremists yeah as we always know we're extremists so some people don't know how to do this because they're so afraid of getting tired that they don't exert much effort to start with okay so you're so afraid of uh doing you know your back hurting your leg hurting your stomach hurting that you don't do anything that could possibly you know do that even though doing those things probably wouldn't bring the pain that you anticipate you know so it's like you know it's one small thing and like well oh, i got to go to bed yeah and then there's the other people who push 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 i've got to i've got to prove that i'm useful i've got to prove myself i have to be here other people are judging me so I'm calling forth my aspiration and enthusiastic effort, and I'm gonna fight my way through this. And then you know you get more exhausted. Oh, there's a few others. I don't have to look at you. <laughs> yeah, well, there's another one. Who does it? Yeah, who else? No, you go on the other extreme. You're the extreme of, oh, I can't do it because this bet that I might get overwhelmed. You're on that extreme. Sorry, dear. Um <laughs> Okay, but yeah, so I mean, we're all extremists in one way or the other, aren't we? Yeah, but our our thing is to learn how to be a balanced human being, and I think if we can learn that, we are already making progress on the path. You know, how to keep ourselves balanced and sane without 
you know, like, you know, I didn't get 10 hours of sleep last night, so I just, I, I can't function today. I have to go to bed. Yeah. Or my little toe hurts again. I, I, I can't get out and get up and do anything because my little toe, you know, a tick bit my little toe and if I walk on it I'm gonna be crippled for the rest of my life. So I'm staying in bed tonight. Yeah. So it's different extremes. Yeah, if we can learn, you know, because becoming balanced means that we have an ability to assess ourselves. Yeah. And instead of living here with all these preconceptions of what I'm not capable of or what I should do, yeah, learning to be realistic, yeah, and balanced. And that's that is very hard for us. So the last two lines of verse 31, aspiration is developed through fear of misery and by contemplating the benefits of aspiration itself. Through thinking about when it says fear of misery, again, it doesn't mean, I'm so afraid that I'm falling, I'm having a panic attack all day long. It's not that. It's like, again, seeing, if I don't put much forth much effort, then what happens? Yeah. Then my life just goes by and it goes by and, you know, I die and then it's, I've, my precious human life is gone. Okay. So, uh, so through contemplating the results of not practicing and contemplating the benefits of having aspiration itself. Okay. So 32. Thus, in order to increase my enthusiasm, I should strive to abandon its opposing forces, to amass the supports of aspiration, self-confidence, joy, and rest, to practice in earnest, and to become strong in self-control. Okay? So that's how we're increasing our enthusiasm, to abandon the opposing forces, the three kinds of laziness, which we are very familiar with, and then to amass the supports, the beneficial qualities of aspiration, self-confidence, joy, and rest. And then, having done that, what do we do? To practice in earnest and to become strong and self-controlled. Okay? Self-control doesn't mean, I've got to control myself. It means being mindful and having uh, introspective awareness. Uh, knowing how we want to be in the world and then monitoring our body, speech, and mind. You know, being aware of what's going on inside of us and how those actions are being exp- uh, displayed on the outside and then monitoring that and adjusting it. So 33... So this is what things we have to uh, abandon to have aspiration. I shall have to overcome the boundless faults of myself and others. And in order to destroy each of these faults alone, 
I may have to strive until an ocean of eons is exhausted. That's too hard. I can't do it. I'm going to sleep. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, instead of reacting like that, think about that and think I have the potential to develop so that I will be able to do that. It's not saying I have to do it now or I should have been able to do it before. It's a way of encouraging ourselves of this, I have this kind of potential and this is something I can do. Okay, It's so interesting, isn't it? How we always go to first to either the I can't do it or I have so much energy that I overcommit and then wind up not being able to do it. Yeah, our our extremist tendencies. Okay, so an awareness of our potential. And that gives us some self-confidence. Self-confidence doesn't mean that we're capable of doing everything now. Yeah, self-confidence means that we're confident that we have the ability to grow in quite an incredible, marvelous way. And that we're confident, yeah, that we have the potential to be able to do that. And it may take a while, it will take a while, but it's possible. Okay, 34. Yet, so let's read 33 and then 34 follows naturally. I shall have to overcome the boundless, boundless faults of myself and others. And in order to destroy each of these faults alone, I may have to just strive until an ocean of eons is exhausted. Yet, if within myself I do not perceive even a fraction of the perseverance required to exhaust these faults, then why do I not have a heart attack? Uh, I just had one. Yeah, I can't do this. For now, I have become an abode for infinite misery because I've given up on myself. Okay. Yeah, why do we become an abode for infinite misery? We don't see any potential in our lives. We give up on ourselves. I can't do it. It's too hard. Yeah. Path is too hard. Goal is too high. I don't have the what it takes. Okay? So likewise, I shall have to realize many qualities of myself and myself and others. And in order to attain each of these qualities alone, I may have to acquaint myself with its cause until an ocean of eons is exhausted. Ah, I have to do all this, abandon not only my own faults, but the faults of others. How am I going to do this? And plus, I've just had a heart attack, so I can't do it. And then I have to develop my own and others' good qualities, which means acquainting myself with the cause of that for, again, limitless eons. 
I just can't. I'm exhausted. Really. Okay, so we give up on ourselves. We give up on ourselves. Verse 36. However, I have never developed acquaintance with even a fraction of these excellences. So I have never even exerted myself in the tiniest bit to try and abandon these faults or to try and develop even a teeny bit of good qualities. I've so given up on myself that I haven't tried to do anything. It's like Tyrone couldn't try to learn how to read because he was convinced that even if he tried, he couldn't do it. Yeah. Okay. How strange it is to squander this verse, I have, this birth, I have found by some coincidence. So I have a precious human life, which is not any old human life. Yeah, just having a human life alone is not having a precious human life. If you don't understand the difference between the two, go back to that initial meditation in the Lam Rim about the 18 qualities of a precious human life. And there you really see, yeah, you can be have a human body, but you don't have a precious human life because you don't have all the conditions to uh, learn the Dharma and to practice it. So here it's saying how strange it is to squander this precious human life that I found by some coincidence. Now, we actually didn't get this birth by coincidence. It's not random. It's not by chance. Whoever we were in many, many previous lifetimes, that person worked very hard. You know, that person kept good ethical conduct. That person uh, did their best to practice the six uh, paramitas. That person made very strong prayers to be able to meet the path and meet qualified teachers in future lives. So, you know, it's not just one rebirth. It's we had to create the cause for this birth over many previous lives. So that's why we say it's like a coincidence. Because, again, if I look at myself and how somebody like me could have the opportunity that I have, it, it's really like a miracle. It's either a miracle or a coincidence, you know? But like, how did in the world that I ever create all the causes necessary to have the, the benefits in this life that I have? You know? It's, it's amazing. How in the world did that happen? I don't know, okay? But, you know, the teachings say in previous life you created the causes, so I must have. But it, you know, it seems still very much like a miracle. So if you have a miraculous life, how can you squander it and just say, I can't do it? Yeah. I can't do it. Or nobody else believes me and believes in me. Everybody puts me down. 
Nobody understands me. Nobody believes in me. Everything is just, you know, too, too much. And even if people believe in me, they don't like me. They don't appreciate me. I try so hard, but they don't appreciate. I just get criticism. They criticize me for qualities I don't have, and they don't see my beneficial qualities. Woe is me. Huh? Okay. So that kind of way of looking at ourselves, yeah, that is an excellent example of what we call distorted conception and a mass of afflictions all stemming from grasping at true existence and self-centered thought. Okay. So, yeah, when it says, how strange it is to squander this birth I have found by some co- coincidence. It's like if, if somebody gave you a million dollars, are you going to just sit there and go, oh, well, here's a million dollars. Okay, but, you know, I, I just can't do anything, and I'm hopeless, and, you know, okay, I've had a million dollars, but I still can't do much with it. I can't get what I want. Yeah? No, if, you, if somebody gives you a million dollars, you're going to go and use it. Okay, starting in the next second. there's not going to be any delay and there's not going to be any despondency of, oh, there's a million dollars, now I've got to use this. This is just too difficult. Okay. And that shows that we value a million dollars more than we value our precious human life, which means that we have everything upside down. Okay. Yeah. That's indicative of the mind immersed in the eight worldly concerns, where we think money is more valuable than our precious human life. Okay, so how have I squandered it? Verse 37 gives us some good examples. I have not made offerings to the, the Bhagawan Buddhas. Well... You know, yeah, I gave them some dried orange stuff. Now, okay, I've made offerings of shiny, fake, dried papaya. <laughs> yeah, but did did I think of Bodhicitta when I put that on the altar? Did I think of the agent, ob- object, and action? as uh, dependent and empty of inherent existence? Yeah. Did I even think, or did I just do it because I was on the rota? This, this is the problem with rotas, is you, you do it because you're on the rota. You don't do it because you have a motivation of wanting to help. Okay. I am anti-Rhoda. <laughs> you got to be anti-something. 
Yeah, no, I'm joking. The rotas have their purpose occasionally, but better than rotas is a mind that wants to help. Yeah, better than rotas is a mind that wants to be part of the team that makes it happen. That doesn't mean you have to do everything. Okay. But there's a team spirit. There's a, a wish to help and benefit. I have not given the pleasure of great festivals. Oh, I have not had a big wedding where everybody can come and get drunk. No, those aren't the kind of festivals they're talking about here. Okay, I think they're talking about, you know, sponsoring pujas, uh, sponsoring katina, yeah, different uh, ceremonies where we have the uh, opportunity to create generosity, you know, even working in a, um, a home for the elderly and having parties or things that bring the elderly some joy like even bringing little kids into the home for the elderly. When I was in Penang, Malaysia, I, I stayed at one temple, and the temple uh, next door, there's the temple and the next door building they owned and they operate, and the bottom floor was a home for the elderly, and then above that was a kindergarten. And they had the kindergarten and the daycare come down and be with the elderly folks. And it was so beautiful to see because they just loved each other. Yeah, they just could love each other. And for the elderly to give their love to the kids and for the kids to give their spontaneity and joy to the elderly, it was just beautiful to see. Yeah, so, you know, yes, that's a worldly activity in one way, but in another, it's a dharma activity because you're helping those two groups of people connect from the heart with each other. And that connection from the heart is really the basis of eventually developing bodhicitta. You know, that ability to connect with other living beings. I have not performed actions for the teachings. Yeah. So when it was time to set up for teachings, I had something else I needed to do. And when it was time to uh, clean up from teachings, uh, that tick bite on my little toe was just really getting to me. And uh, when it was time for me to give a BBC, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it. My stomach hurt. And when it was, you know, time to, uh, yeah, do something else, then uh, I just, you know, I couldn't do it. Okay. So I have not made offerings to the Bhagavan Buddhas. I have not given the pleasure of great uh, festivals to others. I have not performed actions for the teachings. I have not fulfilled the wishes of the poor. Now, when I've had extra money or resources, I've kept it to myself. 
or kept it for my family to the people who were more important to me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this miserliness, miserliness. Okay. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you again, but this is something I have to fight against. Uh, I remember when I was living in Dharamsala and uh, studying with Gishino Andarge. And during the, I was going to his classes in the morning, and he was teaching all the Mahayana scriptures. And then uh, some afternoons I had to go to, uh, to the bazaar to buy groceries. And it was a walk to the, to the bazaar. And we had, uh, in, you know, in the area, there, there were beggars who lived in the area. And we, we, all, we knew those beggars. Yeah, and they, they knew us, too, if you stayed there for any amount of time. Then there were the beggars who kind of came for the holidays, yeah. But the, beg- the regular beggars, um, most of them were lepers, yeah. So hand missing, fingers missing, toes missing, feet missing. And they would sit by the, um, the side of the road, and, and they would say hello, and... You know, we'd say hello. And when I was living in India, I was very, very poor. I I did not have sponsorship, and I was just living on the little money I had left. And uh, 25 pesa, that's a quarter of a rupee. Okay, now it's not much, but in those days, 25 pesa got you a cup of tea, you know, on the train. You know, the little cups of tea in the... um, well, now they use uh, little cups, but before they were clay cups. Now they use like cups that you get in the dispenser. But in the old days, they had clay cups. You know, Twenty-five pace, hot tea. Oh my goodness, you love that tea. Um, and and they would just say bakshish, memsa, bakshish, bakshish means give me something. And uh, because I had very little, I could not get myself to give them 25 pace for a cup of tea. And so I would walk past them going, I've got to save my money, I've got to save my money. And then Geshe Nalandargi's teaching going on in my head about the benefits of generosity and what the bodhisattvas do, and how and cherishing others more than self, and how joyful you feel about helping others. And, oh, I should give, but I want that 25 pays so I can get a cup of tea in the bazaar so that I can walk back up the hill, because you had to walk up the hill with your heavy groceries. Oh, my heavy groceries, and I need the cup of tea to get me up the hill. You know, some people took a taxi. Well, actually, those days, there weren't many taxis. You had to walk, you know? And it was like, Geshe Nalandargi's, I didn't even have to try and review the morning teachings. They were there, you know? And then my mind saying, no, keep it for yourself. You can buy one extra banana with those 25 pays. Huh? 
And then to have to, you know, to see what the, the miserly mind does. Yeah, it's really pathetic. So, um, yeah, I have not fulfilled the wishes of the poor. I volunteer for that one. Well, I don't volunteer. I am forced by my miserliness to to be part of that one. Okay, so uh, yeah, so really looking, do, you know, do we have a mind of generosity that wants to share? Even when we make offerings, do we give the best stuff to the Buddha, or do we give? You know the apple that has a bad spot, and the the box of whatever it is that's already been opened. Um, you know, what is it that we make offerings with? Is it the old stuff and what we don't want, or is it stuff that we think is really beautiful, or that we know somebody else would like and we want them to have? Okay. I have not granted fearlessness to the frightened. Yeah. In fact, sometimes we torment the frightened. Yeah. Sometimes the way adults treat children, they torment them. They make them more afraid. Yeah. A child is not afraid, and the adult says, if you don't behave, the boogeyman is going to be under your bed and come and get you when you're asleep. Yeah, adults say that to kids. Yeah, and make up all sorts of things to frighten children with. Yeah. Instead, we should help the those who are who are frightened, those who are afraid, and comfort them, show them options. You know what they can do, and certainly not take pleasure. Over, over having so much power that we can make them afraid. Yeah, you see that in the war, what's going on now. You know, some of the remarks that different parties are making. Uh, you know, Larove, the, he's the defense guy in Russia, you know, again, talking about nuclear weapons, you know, threatening. Yeah, from our side, uh, our defense guy, saying you know we want we want to see russia um weakened yeah those are not things that are are going to create peace yeah they're designed to make other people afraid and i have not given happiness to the weak in fact i tortured them and made them get out of bed yeah, when I was the the disciplinarian of those wonderful Italian monks, yeah, who liked to oversleep in the morning, even though Lama Yeshi said everybody had to be at morning puja, no exceptions. And they they're they're the Sangha who's setting the example for the lay people at the center. And the lay people are at morning puja, and the monks aren't. And I am the disciplinarian of the monks, so it's my responsibility to get them out of bed. So I have not given happiness to the weak. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I have. I tried to get them out of bed, and they said no. <laughs> yeah. Even I said, but Lama wants everybody there. Lama said, you know, usually Lama said had some power. No. Retired. Okay, it's your precious human life, whether you want to show up or not. Yeah. Well, I wish I had such a lazy, fair attitude then. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't just say, well, it's your life, your choice. I was mad. Yeah. See, this is sometimes you take responsibility, you know, some. You have a responsibility, and then you do your best, but the other people won't cooperate, and then you get mad because you have the responsibility. If you could give up the responsibility, then you wouldn't care. Yeah, whether people listened or not. But when you say, I'm responsible, then you're, you'll care. Yeah. When I stayed at this monastery in Thailand, for a few weeks, and uh, uh, we stayed in one building, and in the back of the building, people had, I don't know who, had thrown trash. Okay. Now, if I was the one in charge of that monastery, there would not be trash behind that building. But I wasn't the abbot, so... Well, that's the abbot's thing. It, they, they're they okay with having trash. Uh, I'm only here for a couple of weeks. It's okay. I'm going to relax. I'm not going to get upset about it. And I'm definitely not going to clean it up because I'm not, I'm not on the rota. <laughs> okay. Interesting how that is. Yeah. That okay? Trash is there. I don't think it's especially becoming. Yeah. Whenever I see that kindness thing around here, I let people know right away that it is unacceptable. But there I didn't have the responsibility, so I could relax. Hmm. Yeah. But in Italy, I had to be the one to get out of bed, try and wake the others up, be unsuccessful, go to morning puja myself with an angry mind. Your teacher teaches you in very interesting ways that you have a problem with anger. So I have not given happiness to the weak. All I have given rise to is the agonies in the mother's womb and to suffering. So I haven't made offerings. I haven't had sponsored pujas and festivals. I haven't done anything for the teachings. I haven't fulfilled the wishes of the poor. I haven't eliminated the fearlessness of the frightened. I haven't given happiness to the weak. All I've done is cause my mother pain in giving birth to me. Ouch. Ouch. 
But very often, that's how the self-centered mind manifests, isn't it? Yeah, we were talking about that at lunch on Sunday. Yeah, I didn't ask to be born. You're my parents. You should do this and that for me. You had me. It was your choice. So give me what I want. Yeah. We, we you know, we didn't appreciate it. We didn't appreciate, you know, what the pain that our mother went through having us. We just assumed, you know, she went in the hospital. She had a baby, came home. Yeah. My mom told me, I don't know if you what mothers do, but uh, my mom said, yeah, that it hurt so much having me that she's glad she didn't remember, otherwise she wouldn't have had a second child. It was that bad. Okay. And then she said, wait until you have kids. And I said, mm, no thanks. <laughs> We'll stop here. Maybe you have questions or comments. Building on your Tyrone story, the other element that was there when I was a kid, it's really changed for the most part in parenting and in teaching, is that all the emphasis was put on the score of the test. And so kids, right across the board, rich kids, poor kids, your score determined your self-worth. And I took this right into even university. I had that for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so... That's really sad that, that, you know, that our whole view of ourselves is on that test score, which yeah. replicates itself in all the subject areas yeah. for so long. The, 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 the test scores, uh, now also the references, your, uh, your uh, other activities, clubs and so on. And there's apparently now a big surge in mental illness for teens. And I think a lot of it comes because of this kind of pressure of kids thinking I'm only worthwhile because I have a good resume. The meaning of my life is my CV. And it doesn't just stop when you graduate. I mean, how do you get a job? You have to have, to have your CV. And not realizing that certain topics for certain people don't work at certain times. Yep. And all the effort and creativity that could be recognized in an individual used to not matter at all. Right. Right. And this is often what happens with people who are incarcerated. Some of them are extremely intelligent, artistically very good. You know, they can write, they can draw musically. But there's no opportunity, and nobody ever encouraged that because it wasn't tested for. Another major source of the low self-esteem is uh, we're always comparing ourselves to some extreme ideal. Uh, like uh, Growing up Catholic, you know, we were taught that we, uh, that we had the potential to be a saint. Mm-hmm. We should be a saint. Yeah. You know, look at St. Francis, but he did. We could do that. Yeah. What we weren't given was the long rim. <laughs> I, I was never given the catch of how to do it. How to get there. Yeah. 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 You're four years old and you should already be a saint, but uh, you don't know how to, how to get there. Yeah. Also, um, minority kids in school 
are not often encouraged to succeed or to go for college or to, you know, they're, they're mm -hmm. not often. And whether that's um, in a subconscious way or in a conscious way, um, I don't know. But um, uh, in, in Sacramento, for example, in the school district that Adriana went to school for, she was the only um, Latino child who was in the regular classes. You know, and she was always asked, you know, what are you doing here um, by the other kids? I didn't learn this un until she was already out of those schools. But it's like, well, why are you doing here? Because there was no other child with a Latino name that was in, in, in those classes. It's the kids were uh, yeah. not encouraged to succeed. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, some kids don't don't have the vision of what their lives can become. Yeah, and some and some of that is by their own parents and some yeah. of them is is by the school. Yeah. So yeah. It's by the it could be parents, schools, the whole community. They don't see role models in their community. Yeah. Or, you know, in in the I mean it depends so much because sometimes minorities they really encourage their kids. Yeah, and then, yeah, you can see how it could go either way. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it comes from many different areas. On the subject of picking up trash, that reminded me of how at the end of the full ordination, I was in a dorm of 36 people, and on the last day, everyone's just like packing their bags and trying to get out and, you know, haul your luggage out. And the nun who came with us from Pui Nunnery stayed behind and picked up the trash for everybody. Wow. Yeah, which of course I told her teacher about. Um, Good. Who was very proud. And, and then I from Shabasti Abbey, I rejoiced. <laughs> Sorry. But I was just really impressed by, you know, and she was so unassuming. She's like, of course we have to do this. She wasn't like angry or like nobody stayed. I mean, we were the last to leave, right? Because she was our ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 